How do you respond to Jesus when he's not the Savior you want, but the Savior you need? Well, it's Tuesday. We are still in the last week of Jesus' life, and we are coming now, finally, to the very end of a very long day. And you can't probably understand how probably tired Jesus is on this day of Tuesday. It's been a long day. We've been in this day for a while, haven't we? I mean, think about all the things that have happened in this one day. You go back, all the religious elite approach Jesus to drill him with questions about his authority. You have the Pharisees and Sadducees, Herodians and teachers of the law. And Jesus ends up in kind of like this crossfire political de debate between these guys. And they're trying to catch this little rabbi from Galilee in his words. He then preaches a number of sermons where he begins to denounce these religious leaders, kind of revealing to the, uh, the public their uh, hypocrisy. He then weeps over the city of Jerusalem and teaches his disciples how to be ready for that upcoming persecution and suffering they're going to face. A little bit later on that day, we saw him go to the temple courts and admire a poor widow, putting her offering into the temple treasury. He teaches his disciples how to be ready and get ready. And specifically, getting ready looks like helping the least of these. We've seen Jesus in these high-pressure situations, in the middle, middle of a political debate, preach three sermons and answer all kinds of questions in between. And all throughout this day, Jesus just keeps on knocking it out of the park. And while he's doing that, he creates some enemies. We see this in Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him, but not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him thirty silver coins. And from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. As I read this passage, I can't help but think this one question. Why betray Jesus? Why kill him? I mean, when I was assigned this passage to preach, those questions kept rolling around in my mind over and over again. Why kill Jesus? I mean, why did he, according to the religious elite, have to go? Why was he such a threat? Why get rid of a guy that spent all of his time in little towns and villages healing people and casting out demons? Why betray a guy that fed the hungry masses of Jews and hung out with poor fishermen and lonely tax collectors? Why give a guy the capital punishment when the most violent thing he ever did was overturn some tables in the temple courts? Why kill Jesus? And my investigation to this question started when I read one little word, the word all. It's found in Matthew 26, verse 1. He says this, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, 
It was a literary device that Matthew, our author of our book today, used all throughout his book when he had finished saying these things. It signified when he was kind of concluding a section or chapter or theme of the book and moving on to the next chapter of the book. And Matthew, being a good Jewish boy writing to a good Jewish audience, arranged his book just the way the Jews arranged their law, around five sermons. And so in the Jewish law, you have the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And in Matthew's book, you have five sermons. And each sermon, the purpose of it is to flesh out the story or narrative that comes before the sermon. And so you would have story sermon, story sermon, story sermon, so forth and so on. And each story and sermon were connected to a common theme, but not in the way the Jews would expect. You see, each story and sermon combination would kind of unearth a Jewish expectation that they had about this Savior that was coming. But at the same time, it would undermine that expectation. We see it right off the bat in Matthew chapter 1. The angel describes the baby Jesus that's going to be born to Mary as in Matthew 1.21, the one who will save his people from their sins. Now, that's not like a moral sin that we immediately think of. According to the Jews, they believed that they were in this situation they were in because of their sins. They believed they disobeyed God, and because of that, God allowed and used the Romans to conquer them and oppress them into this kind of slavery. And so for them, a savior would be someone who would overthrow the Romans, who would rescue them from the situation that they were in. And so they were looking for a liberator, some kind of war general to come and lead the charge. They're looking for a Conan the Barbarian or a William Wallace or a Katniss Everdeen, somebody who would lead up the hill to freedom, saying, this is where we're going. And the problem is, Jesus preaches a sermon called the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. And in this sermon, he says things like, blessed are the peacemakers and turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. Those are not the kind of things you want to hear come off the lips of your war general. And the Jews would read this sermon confused and bewildered as Matthew would conclude by saying in Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus had finished saying these things. And there's the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. In the beginning of chapter 2, we see Jesus as this kind of roaming do-gooder. He would go from village to village and help these different kinds of people, casting out demons, healing the sick, a sick girl and a woman. And we actually see Jesus ascribed a title by a blind man in Matthew chapter 9. He says this, Have mercy on us, son of David. You see, this was another contemporary Jewish expectation that this liberator, this war general, would also come from the royal bloodline would also be a king. So they were looking for a liberator and a king. Yet Jesus wasn't quite fitting the mold. He wasn't gathering around all the religious and political figures of the day and strategizing war tactics and espionage plans. No, instead he went and round up a bunch of outcasts and downcasts of society into his inner circle. The presidential candidate came into town, people all already saying he was their savior. I mean, he had the right look, the face, the hair, the voice, the support. 
They were actually already calling him Mr. President before he had even won the election. Yet he wasn't acting very presidential. He wasn't whining and dining the high rollers of society. Instead, he spent his time with a handful of blue-collar workers. He wasn't out kissing babies and shaking hands. Instead, he withdrew to lonely places by himself, avoiding the crowds and the media. He didn't stand up and make campaign promises saying, if you elect me, I'm going to make your lives better and easier. No, instead, he stood up and said, if you want to be part of my campaign, my party, you want to follow me, you have to be willing to lose everything. He came from the right family, yet he hung out with the wrong people. He had the right credentials, he just did the wrong things. And after he preached a sermon, Matthew concludes by saying in Matthew 11, verse 1, after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, enters chapter 3. Now, at this time in the book, Jesus' earliest supporters and backers begin to question, hey, did we cast our lots in with the right guy? Were our contributions made to the right campaign party, or did we misjudge the potential of this political leader? Even John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, from prison, sends messengers to Jesus. Hey, are you the liberating king we're looking for? Are you the guy that's going to rescue us from this situation, or did we misjudge you? Should we be waiting for someone else? And Jesus responds in Matthew 11, The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. This was one of those other Jewish expectations from Isaiah 61. They believed that this Savior, this liberating king, was going to usher in the golden years. They believed he was going to look at all the injustices and oppressions of society, and he was going to make it all right. Everything that was wrong, everything the Romans were doing, he was going to undo. And Jesus quotes this, and yet his actions don't seem to match his words. John, probably in prison, confused, wondering why is Jesus out there in these little villages spending time with these fishermen instead of rescuing me from prison? I mean, I'm heading to execution. I was the first one that said, hey, that's the guy. John's expectations of what a Savior do are not matching with what Jesus was doing. I love how Jesus responds. He doesn't try to fit their mold or get defensive or try to please everyone. He just says, you know, maybe, just maybe, maybe I'm not the man you want, but I might be the man you need. And Jesus preaches a sermon in Matthew 13 called the Sermon of Parables, in which he tells all these little stories. And he begins poking holes in the contemporary Jewish expectations of what this world was about and what was to be valued and what God's kingdom was to be like. And begins to reveal to them, hey, maybe what you want is not what you need. Sure, you might be looking for a savior to make things easier. Sure, you might be looking for a savior to keep you safe or to make you comfortable. Sure, you might be looking for a savior to clean the mess or remove the pain. Sure, you might be looking for a savior to give you what you want, but that might be not what you need. And Matthew concludes his sermon by saying, when Jesus had finished these parables. And as we turn that blank page in our storybook that leaves way too many questions unanswered and leaves things cloudier instead of clearer, 
leaves us pursing our lips and scratching our heads, we move to chapter 4. And this is where things really get interesting. You see, at this time, the Jews are saying, okay, this guy is saying the right things, but he's acting the wrong way. Is he the one we're waiting for? Is he the liberating king to usher in the golden years? Is he the guy? Is he, shall we say, the Christ? I don't know if you know this or not, but the word Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's not like my last name is Huffer or Patrick's last name is Garcia. If you wanted to look up Jesus' name in the phone book, you wouldn't look under C's for Christ first. Christ is a title. It literally means anointed one. It's the one that God anointed to rescue his people from the situation they're in. The one that God anointed to reign over his kingdom. And they're wanting to know, is Jesus the Christ? And Jesus engages the conversation. He asks the disciples, who do people say I am? One, you know, they answer different ways. But finally, in a climactic, dramatic moment in the book of Matthew, Simon Peter stands up and says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And as everyone held their breath, and a silence fell over the audience, you could hear a, hear a pin drop. The unthinkable happens. Matthew's audience sees the self-proclaimed Messiah say something that no Savior should say. In Matthew 16, verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. What? Excuse me? How in the world is the liberating king that's going to usher in the golden years do it by dying on a cross? This was insane. You see, the Romans, they had conquered us. They had destroyed our temple, and they were taxing us heavenly. How in the world should our liberating king defeat them and overthrow them by dying? This just did not fit. And after that, Jesus confused the situation even more by preaching a sermon where he emphasized over and over again, the greatest in the kingdom must humble himself like a child. And Matthew concludes by saying in 19 verse 1, when Jesus had finished saying these things. Four stories, four sermons. And we turn our storybook to the last chapter titled, The Week. The last week of Jesus' life. Boy, this, this chapter begins with a bang. If you thought Matthew's audience's heads aren't swirling at this point, they were in for a real treat. Because here, Jesus bursts onto the scene, entering Jerusalem as the king of the Jews. There's a party. There's a parade. They're waving palm branches. They're singing, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And the Jews are like, yes, yes, this is the guy we're waiting for. He is the Christ. He is the one until he enters Jerusalem and goes straight to the temple where he overturns tables, drives out the money changers, denounces the temple saying this thing will be destroyed and tears apart the religious leaders. This was it. Our perfect candidate, our powerful leader with all the followers and supporters and backers had lost his ground among the political leaders. He had to go. And Jesus preaches his last sermon. 
And Matthew concludes it by saying in Matthew 26, verse 1, when Jesus had finished saying all these things. Matthew signifies to his audience, that's it! There's no more sermons, no more stories. The conflict is clear. Nothing more has to be said. It's the word all that shows us the Jews do not like Jesus. He's not what they expected. He is not what they wanted. There's no, all the stories, all the sermons, the words, the actions, the Sermon on the Mount, the parables, the judgment, they're all done. And Matthew's gospel takes one final dramatic turn to the cross. Right? All that's left is what he predicted in Matthew 16 when he said this. From that time on, he explained to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Why did they betray Jesus? Why wasn't he what they wanted? Why did they get rid of him because he didn't meet their expectations of him. How did they respond when he was not who they wanted him to be? They betrayed him. They abandoned him. And they killed him. How do you respond when Jesus isn't the Savior you want, but he is the Savior you need? How do you respond when Jesus isn't the Savior you want, but he's the Savior you need? Why did they kill him? I think they killed him because not only was he not the Savior they wanted, he revealed to them what they needed. They didn't need stricter laws. They needed a new heart. They didn't need a war. They needed an ultimate sacrifice. They didn't need freedom from oppression. They needed freedom from sin. They didn't need to curse their enemies, but to bless their enemies. How do you respond when Jesus is not the Savior you want, but he reveals to you what you need? He didn't just challenge them. He undermined everything that their lives and their authority that their power had been based upon. How do you respond when Jesus isn't the Savior you want, yet he reveals to you what you need? How do you respond when Jesus doesn't give you the promotion you want, yet he reveals to you the contentment that you need? How do you respond when Jesus doesn't answer the healing that you want, yet he develops in you the faith that you need? How do you respond when Jesus doesn't relieve the persecution and the suffering you want, yet he teaches you the endurance and the steadfastness that you need? How do you respond when Jesus doesn't meet your expectations of him? How do you respond when you get laid off and stay unemployed for months? How do you respond when you don't get into the school you applied to? How do you respond when your sister dies no matter how much you prayed? How do you respond when you lose friends over facts and matters of your integrity? How do you respond when Jesus isn't the Savior you want, but he's the Savior you need? I think Jesus wants to make one promise to you all this morning. I think he wants to say this. I may not be what you want, but I promise you, I am what you need. So let me tell you a little bit about the Savior we need. This world, when you look around, is just falling apart. It is groaning as if in the chains, pains of childbirth, looking for something to redeem it and to rescue it. And the decisions that we continue to make hurt ourselves and those around us. We find ourselves stuck in hurts, habits, and hangups. And we're in this perpetual prison that we just cannot burst out of. We are dead in our sin and transgressions. We need someone to give us a resurrection. And Jesus is the guy because, you know what, Jesus 
is alive. He created this world. Through him, all things were made. He is the author and perfecter of our life. He sustains every breath we breathe. And every time the sun rises and sets, it's at his hand. It's by his control and his will. And he's not some distant deistic God. No, he came and moved into our neighborhood and walked the dust we walk and breathed the air we breathe. And he went and crawled up on a cross and he put to death all of the evil, the suffering, the pain, the sin of the world. He said, it's finished. It's done. And when he burst forth from the tomb, when he burst forth from that tomb and went and reigned on a throne in heaven, he became the savior that we all need because he lives. This fact was made real in my life by a guy named Wade Lowry. Uh, at Ozark Christian College, we all lived in these dorms, and uh, every dorm had what we called dorm parents. And they were usually an elderly couple, retired, just there to spoil all these college students away from home. And, and one year, they actually, uh, one of the dorm parents resigned, and they hired Wade Lowry, this young guy in his 30s, single, to be the dorm dad. And we were like, well, that's kind of weird. Well, we'll see how this goes. He was the dorm dad of Strong Hall, and he was awesome. Way would go out and, and stay up late at night talking to guys about theological issues, about uh, their pain and what they're going through with their families. He'd go out to eat Chicago-style pizza with us. He was just a fantastic guy. We love Wade. And Wade, there was this tradition that on Thursday nights, all the dorms would go and gather in their dorm and have what we call dorm devos. And they would sing songs, have a message, maybe some announcements. And Wade instituted this tradition at Stronghold where every time they got together, at the very end, all the guys would sing in unison at the top of their voices. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. Wade preached in chapel uh, one, one time that year. And he got up that morning and he preached a sermon that sounds a lot like this from Colossians 3 saying, hey, we need a resurrection and the guy who can give us that is Jesus because he is alive, because he lives. And he invited all the guys in Strong Hall to stand up where they were at. And they all stood up and they all sang in a loud voice together, concluding his sermon. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. And at this time in the service, the whole student body joined in singing. And you guys can too if you want. Because I know he holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. About a week after Monica and I, he could remain standing. 
About a week after Monica and I graduated college, we packed all of our belongings up into a U-Haul truck to move here to Evansville. That night, we stayed on the floor of our apartment, just in sleeping bags. It was kind of fun. And we woke up the next day, and Monica got on Facebook and, and jumped up. And I'll never forget this. She said, Cy, it's been posted on Ozark's page that Wade was found, passed away in his recliner of a massive heart attack. A few days later, a video was posted of Wade's funeral where dozens of guys from around the country came together and stood in front of I don't know how many people with a casket in the midst of them and sang for all to hear. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow because he lives all fear is gone because